reason for the flags, the hymns, the music, many of the other comments made during this time of worship is this is Missions Month at Wake Chapel Christian Church. I trust that we will not relegate all of our missions concern to one month. And our church doesn't do that. It is spread across the whole year. But this is a time of special emphasis, special prayer for, hopefully special things to educate us with respect to our missions, uh, special prayer times, special giving to missions, because we do have a message to take to the nations. Wake Chapel Church has 32 missionaries that we support on a regular basis. 32. They are spread from here in Fuquay Arena across the world, across the globe. Australia, Cambodia, back to North Carolina, to Plumtree, youth ministry there, Transworld Radio, spread across the globe, really. They are undertaking right now uh, updating a transmitter which will allow them to get the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from Cuba down to northern Brazil. So we have a sweet, we believe, God-directed ministry as part of our missions outreach here at Wake Chapel locally and in foreign countries. Our budget for this year is in excess of $130,000. To God be the glory. Thank you for praying for our missionaries and thank you for contributing gifts to our missionaries. You know, I know most of these folks and I will have them say to me, we would rather have your church pray for us than receive their gifts. And I know they are sincere in that. They want us to be praying for them. And we need to take up the other side of that, and that is to support them financially. May the Lord help all of us to take to heart the responsibilities that we have responsibilities that I have, responsibilities that you have. Tell somebody in your family. Maybe, I, 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 would, I would guesstimate that there most of our families, most, not all, but most of our families have somebody in our family that doesn't yet know the Savior. That's our mission field. Fuquay Arena, we have friends, we have neighbors that haven't yet come to faith in Christ. It's our mission field. And we help and we support with our gifts and with our praying 32 missionaries. They count on us and, up, and churches like us. And we are grateful to God for them. And I am for you and for your heart for people that haven't yet come to faith in Christ. God bless you. James Peavy is one of our own. I, he, James didn't grow up here. Uh, somehow he got down to Florida, whatever down there with the pagans. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just want to see if James was awake. His family's down there. Uh, Lauren Poindexter, 
has just grown up at Wake Chapel. God brought them together. They are a family. They've got a young man by the name of Michael. They've got one on the way. Uh, by the way, let me just insert this, okay? I've said this before, and some people don't think I'm serious, but you need to pray for the Peavies for a lot of reasons, not the least of which they're going to miss Michael when they go to the mission field because Grandma ain't going to let him go. <laughs> I'm just warning you. I'm telling you. The day y'all go to the airport, Grandma's got Michael and they gone somewhere else. <laughs> James and I have spoken on several occasions about his filling the pulpit here for us on a Sunday morning. And uh, either there's been something going on here or something going on in his life. They are still in the process of doing a lot of deputation work. Uh, and so it hasn't worked out. But, you know, I believe God had a hand in that. Because if we had him in the pulpit, it wouldn't have been in missions month probably. It would have been before now. But God in his grace had James Peavy not to have deputation work, not to be out of town uh, for a couple of Sundays this month, and I just asked him if he would bring the message for us today. He graciously consented. Um, we know him. We know his family. Uh, I know his heart. Most of you do too. You certainly know Lauren and her heart. So, uh, James, you are, of course, welcome here. Uh, we look forward to hearing what the Lord's put on your heart today. You come and share God's word with us. Well, first, I don't think it'd be fitting to start preaching um, without saying something to the choir and to David. I appreciate you guys. Um, Pastor Ross makes a point to say this every single Sunday, and I know that this Sunday is a little bit different, but and where would we be without the music ministry of Wake Chapel? Um, I think our worship would be very much so incomplete, so thank you. Um, First, before we get started anywhere, there's a, a pile of these on our, on our porch. Um, so if anybody needs plastic forks or spoons, um, you know where to find them. I say this, and I say it nicely, as nice as way possible, but judgment day approacheth. Uh, <laughs> oh, mercy. Seth, I love you. I love you, Seth. So, I have to remind myself of that. Our focus this morning is on uh, prayer. If you've received thir- uh, Thursday, what Sunday's coming, you saw the text. If you viewed your uh, worship folder this morning, you saw the text and you saw the title. And with, with it being Missions Month, uh, what better way to look at missions than to study the greatest missionary in the history of the world? Uh, and looking at Paul and his life. And so as you are turning your pages, I'm assuming to Acts 19, uh, because you know where I'm going before we ever get there. Um, I would like to I could take a moment and uh, introduce a man who has uh, been instrumental in my life, and it's not because I knew him. It's not because uh, he taught me uh, physically, but I've read his biography when I was a child, and uh, that is George Mueller. And if you have never heard or read of George Mueller, I encourage you to go home and there is, you can find on the internet for free his autobiography that doesn't include his entire life, but basically is just a record or a record of his personal diary and how God answered prayers for George Mueller. 
And uh, George Mueller, he was a pastor from the 1800s, uh, right around the time of the Second Great Awakening. And uh, he was a pastor who preached for Charles Spurgeon on, time, on occasions. He was the uh, most influential person in uh, Hudson Taylor's life, and famous missionary who spent a lifetime in China and really pioneered the missionary work in China. And so he influenced his faith and his reaching the mission field. And, uh, but perhaps what George Mueller is most known for are the orphanages. In 1834, at the age of 28, he started his first orphanage. And at that time in England, there were only about 3,400 uh, beds or places for orphans to stay in all of England. And so George Mueller's ministry was a much-needed ministry. And he, over the course of his life, he started five orphan houses, the largest of which could house about 3,000 orphans. And uh, overall, he ministered to 10,024 orphans. It is amazing. And all of this, he never once asked a single person for a dollar. Every single dollar that was brought in, every single meal that was provided for these orphans was done through prayer. He prayed in, and it's estimated based on uh, the record-keeping books, which was phenomenal, uh, he prayed in close to $150 million of today's currency. Just prayed it. There are, there are stories in his, uh, in his journal where there's no food for the children in, at breakfast before they go to school. And so he brings all the kids into the dining hall and he says, let's pray. And by the time they finish praying, a baker is knocking at the door saying, I was up all night thinking about your, your ministry and I wanted to bake some bread and bring it to you. And God met George Mueller and the orphanage's needs time and time again as a result of the faith. Of, and, the, and the work of prayer. And so I encourage you this morning as we discuss prayer, and I know Acts 19, it really doesn't look a lot like a, a praying passage uh, because it doesn't mention a single prayer in here, but the background to Acts 19 is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 5-9. through 9. I encourage you to don't go there right now, but you can go home and read this, and you'll see how it correlates. This is really how we date this uh, book of 1 Corinthians is by looking at Acts chapter 19. And in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says that he's going to be, he's writing to the Corinthians and he says he's going to be staying in Ephesus for a season. And the reason why he's going to be staying in Ephesus until Pentecost is what he says is because there is a wide and effective door for ministry opportunity. And he says to these, uh, to the first Corinthians believer or to the believers who are receiving the first Corinthians letter, he tells them, he says, there are many adversaries. And over multiple times in Paul's letters, he, he requests prayer of believers. And he doesn't specifically request prayer in 1 Corinthians, but it is, it is implied. He tells him, he says, there's this awesome, this amazing opportunity that is before me, and I'm staying here to take advantage of this, but there are many adversaries. And so I encourage you to pray for me. And in doing so, um, the, the 1 Corinthian believer, or the, the believers of Corinth, did pray for him, and we will see this later. And in doing so, God answered their prayers, and he delivered Paul from perhaps one of Paul's greatest uh, greatest stories, in my opinion. It is absolutely astounding. And so with that, let's start looking at Acts chapter 19. The beginning of Acts chapter 19, Paul has been in Ephesus, and you see in verses 8 through 10 that he's been there for close to two years. He started speaking in the synagogue, and God moved him from the synagogue because of opposition. He moved him to uh, this, this lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
Uh, and so he is preaching in this lecture hall for two years. And as a result of him preaching in this lecture hall, the gospel goes to all of Asia, to the entire region. People were hearing the gospel and they're taking it uh, to other, other parts. And Ephesus being a port city had a lot of people coming in from different nationalities. And so the gospel spreads throughout entire Asia because of this ministry. This is the wide and effective door that he told the first Corinthian, or that told the believers about in Corinth. And so he is preaching there. And in verse 19, you can see that many of these people who are practicing magic, the magic that was there that would have been associated with the temple of Artemis, and we will look at that in a moment, but they bring these uh, magic books and they lay them down and they're burning them as a result of their salvation. And it says that the, the total of it was 50,000 Denarii. And a denarii was the equivalent of a day's wage. Your Bible might say a silver, uh, silver coin or uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. That was a day's wage. And so imagine 50,000 days' wages being burnt. That is an incredible testimony to the Lord and the ministry opportunity that Paul had. And so we start in verse 21 and we see now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. After he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. If you go to 1 Corinthians 16, you will see that this is almost the same language, and thereby you can date 1 Corinthians as having been written from Ephesus at this time. And he says in verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, anytime you read in the book of Acts and you see the way written, it is Paul's or is uh, uh, Luke's basically paraphrase or not paraphrase, Luke's phrase for saying Christianity. There's no small disturbance in Christianity. And he's saying that, um, there, this is this is a great, a great disturbance, a, a, a big hindrance. And so we come to verse 24 it says for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis was bringing no small business to the craftsmen. He's ma- this man's making a lot of money off of these shrines, these little statues. And I'm sure you've seen these types of things as you go to the Chinese restaurant and you see the little cat hit, sitting up, in the, up on the side with a little hand doing this. I'm sure you've all seen it. That's a statue. That's something that they would worship. Or you go to a Japanese restaurant and you see the little temple up on, uh, or a little house kind of set on a ledge at the corner of the house or a corner of the room. That would be a little, uh, a place for their ancestors to live. In essence, and so that is essentially an idol or a shrine. And so this this silversmith, he's making a lot of money here. And he realizes that with all these people who are getting saved, it's costing me money. And unsaved people, they get there is nothing they get more angry about than their money. And so they are they're upset and he's making this stir. And he says in verse uh, 25, these have he gathered together with the work of of similar trades, and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And we know that to be true. That was Paul's message, and that should be our message as well, that false gods, these idols that people worship, are no gods at all. I mean, because anybody can go out and carve a, carve a piece of wood and say this is a God, but that God has no power. We serve the one true living God, and that is Paul's message. And that should be our message as well. And any time you are preaching the message of Christ, you will face op- or opposition. You will face persecution. 
as it is told throughout Scripture, and we know this. And this is a clear example of it happening to the Apostle Paul. And so they say he's stirring these people up and uh, getting, them ex- getting them excited, or not, not excited in a good way, but angry, really, about Paul's ministry. And so let's continue on. Not only in verse 27, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess of Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned for her magnificence. And now this wasn't going to happen because Artemis was the, was the god of Ephesus. She was, uh, her image had apparently fallen down from heaven. She was the uh, goddess of fertility. But not only was that, she was also representative of the emperor, uh, emperor worship cult that was taking place in, throughout the entire Roman Empire. And at the death of Julius Caesar, the city of Ephesus dedicated the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven ancient wonder, or wonders of the ancient world, dedicated that temple to the worship of the emperor of Rome. And so this, this ministry, or this not ministry, this, this secular religion isn't going anywhere, but these men, they're stirring people up by saying, he is attacking Artemis. And you can see how this would be a big deal to the people of the city of Ephesus. And so it continues in verse 28. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out, saying, the great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. Now, this theater would have held about 24,000 people. It still stands today. And you can go to Ephesus and actually sin in the theater and see how massive this thing is. And they rushed with one accord into the theater. And you see the rest of verse 29 here, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And this reminds me of the scene from To Kill a Mockingbird. This is an old movie that you guys might have seen in school, Merge, Merge Kids. But as many of you will recognize this, this scene, but they're coming, the, uh, the group of people from the city are coming in to the jail to lynch, basically. It's an angry lynch mob trying, coming to lynch this man who is accused of a crime that he did not commit. And were it not for a little kid standing there pointing out, I know you, I go to school with your kid, I go to your school with your kid, these people would have committed this crime of lynching and hanging this man who was innocent. And so this reminds me of that lynch mob and mobs that we see today, of uh, whether it be the Baltimore riots or whether it even be the Rodney King riots, where you get a group of people who are angry about something, and half the time they don't know why they're angry, but they're angry anyways. It is never a good scenario. It is always a recipe for disaster. And so that is what is taking place here. Paul's traveling companions have been drugged into this theater, and they're basically going to be tried by a kangaroo court. They're going, to be, they're going to be lynched without, without ever having come to trial. And so Paul, he's desiring to go, and you see in verse 30, says Paul wanted to go into the assembly. The disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, which your, your translation may say some of the chief of the city, uh, some of the Asiarchs, and these people would have been the religious leaders of the city. They would have been the ones who were in control of the shrines and, and control of the, or in the leadership over the religious festivities. So some of these people were saying, don't go, Paul. Even the unsaved were saying, don't go into the theater. And so continue in verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, and the assembly was, confused, was in confusion, and the majority did not know the reason they had come together. Sounds typical, doesn't it? 
And some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And the Jews, with moving Alexander to the forward and trying to make him say something to calm the crowd down, was essentially their attempt to try to separate themselves from Christianity. Up until this time, Christianity had been under the guise of Judaism. Roman law would not allow a new religion to be practiced. And so Christianity was allowed to perpetuate as a sect of Judaism. And here, the Jews think, oh, this is a great opportunity for us to separate ourselves from Christianity. Maybe we can wipe this out and dip this in the bud. And so he steps forward, and the result is not exactly what they thought. Verse 34, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all of them as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine it with me, 24,000 people shouting not at a basketball game, not at uh, Virginia to lose and North Carolina to win, which, way to go, guys. Oh, that was amazing. Anyhow, imagine 24,000 people shouting at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. It's incredible. It's an amazing, I mean, it's, you can feel the tension as you read this. And after quieting the crowd, the town clerk, or who would have been the, the Roman uh, leader, um, who would have been the liaison between Rome and Ephesus, so he's, he's a really important person, he's not, not just a clerk, says after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis in the image which fell down from heaven? He's telling them, saying, this isn't going anywhere. This temple isn't going anywhere, so why are we having this? And then he continues, says, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess, which at this time it was illegal to say anything negative against a, a, a Roman god. Any sort of established god, it was illegal to say something negative against that. And sorry, I'm losing my microphone here. Uh, so... He's telling them, saying these people are neither blasphemers nor are they robbers. It says so in verse 38. Then if Demetrius of the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and pro-councils are available. Let them bring charges against one another. He's telling them, saying, guys, this is an unlawful assembly. And in reality, these people were in danger of having repercussions from Rome. Rome hated, hated any sort of riot. And as a matter of fact, there were special Roman legions who were dedicated specifically to riot control or to rebellion control. And so he would, the Romans would come in and they would squash any sort of uprising. And he is telling these people, he's saying, you are in danger of having Rome come in. And that would have been the greatest disgrace to a city like Ephesus. And so after his reasoning with these people and bringing forth logic, because they did not have logic, and you see the tense, the tense situation and the danger that Paul and his companions are in, I mean, this could have broken out away from the theater and spread and been massive persecution in just a matter of hours. It is all diffused. And we come to the point in verse 41, it says, after saying all of this, he has dismissed the assembly. And Paul and his companions wiped their brow and said, whew, that was close. So now let's get to the text that I think really will wrap all of this up for us. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we will see how this correlates with prayer. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry. Chapter 1, it's only one page. I didn't steer you too far. And we'll be starting in verse 8. 
It says in verse 8 here, it says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia. Now, this affliction which came to us in Asia is more than likely, I'm 99.9% sure, that this he is talking about what we just read. He is talking about the situation and in Ephesus where the, the people are having this uprising and the danger that they were in. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises from the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril and will yet deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So Paul is saying all of this, all the deliverance that we saw in Asia, God God miraculously working and we didn't actually see a physical miracle, but God sending this man, uh, Gaius, to come in, and, uh, the, or the, not Gaius, this man, the town clerk, to come in and to squelch this angry mob really was at the hand of God. God providentially placing him there. And so Paul is attributing to that. And now in verse 11, he says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Does Paul believe in the power of prayer? Paul wrote to these people and he told them, he says, this is a great opportunity and uh, have, uh, this, this wide and effective door is open for ministry. Says, but there are many adversaries and we see the people who are opposing against him and we see the, the physical uh, danger that Paul was in and Paul later writes about it and says, we were at the point of death, but God delivered us. And he says, you helped with your prayers. It's amazing to think that God responds to our prayers. And you know, there's this, there's this uh, theory out there that God doesn't really actually respond to our prayers, that God is, God being sovereign, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't change his plans. And no, God doesn't. God is sovereign. God is, he is uh, uh, the ruler over all the world. He has foreknowledge and he has ordained every single thing to happen. And so people will say, oh, there's no sense in really praying other than just to change ourselves. Prayer is not meant to, to change the situation, but rather it's meant to change ourselves. And you know, I would, I would argue till I'm blue in the face with that person that God responds to prayer. The biblical example throughout scripture is that God responds to his people when they pray. That the course of action is going one direction. God's people humble themselves and pray. The course of action changes. And I'm not saying that God changes and that God is, loses some of his sovereignty, but rather God has ordained the ends and he has also ordained the means. God has anticipated that we are going to pray and he has included that into his plan. And so when you are not praying, you are out of the will of God. When you are not praying, Paul, Paul or the missionary writing home cannot write home and say, you helped us with your prayers. Rather, instead, God worked in spite of your, your lack of praying. And so I encourage, I encourage you people, and I encourage myself, God wants us to pray and God physically and actively responds to our prayers. If you don't believe me, 
study your scriptures. Go from the Old Testament all the way through. You see Moses interceding for the, for the nation of Israel in Exodus 34. Interceding, saying, blot me out. Instead of taking rid of all, getting rid of all these people. And God changes the course of action. God had it in his will all along, but he changes the course of action. Because of the result of one man praying. Elijah prays at Mount Carmel. Fire comes down from heaven. I can show you so many examples. James 5.16 says the effective effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We've all heard this, this term. We've all heard this verse. We know it in our hearts and our minds. But do we allow it to change our actions? Do we allow it to physically motivate us towards prayer? And I'm not here to guilt trip you on you don't pray enough. Uh, that's, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not here to guilt trip you on saying you're not praying properly. That's between you and the Lord. I'm merely here just to encourage you, say God responds to prayer, so let's pray. Let's respond to God and pray. And I can affirm in my own life, uh, I can sit, if you ask me, tell me how God has, uh, God has answered your prayers, I will respond to you, you God, do you have an hour? Because God has, re- God has responded to the prayers of my wife and so many of you in here have prayed for us repeatedly re- I mean, and for situations that have come up in our lives. And if you don't believe it, I dare you. Walk down to the nursery and stare at the two-year-old down there who is playing with Carter, his best friend, and tell me that God doesn't answer prayer. After three miscarriages and after giving up and uh, getting ready to sign the adoption papers, to, to send, send in for the adoption process and be put on a waiting list, and not feeling right about it and saying, you know, let's hold off for a week and then finding within that week that we are pregnant and that child is named Michael. I believe 100% that God responds to prayer. Was God has directed us, uh, he moved us to Australia, or he had us heading towards Australia. He changed our plans. And he changed our plans because of prayer. We were praying for clear direction. We were having issues with visas. And we asked the Lord, we said, Lord, please give us some direction here. And the immigration lawyer says, you know what? It's going to be two years and I'm not even guaranteeing you can get in. $10,000 later, you may not even get into the country. And so we, are, we have been praying fervently for God to answer and for God to move. And that was the sign of God moving. So he took that and he relocated us. And through much prayer, you guys prayed for us as we went and visited with people and uh, with missionaries all across who are going to different places across the world and trying to evaluate which ministry we're going to go into. And then we, we feel as though God's leading us to the Dominican Republic. We don't announce it to everybody in the world because it is kept kind of close to our heart. But we tell a select few who are praying for us the entire time for God's clear direction. And God answered. God opened the door, and now we're heading to the Dominican Republic, and we are starting language school this week. On Tuesday, we start language school. We're studying. We're going to be moving in November. It's exciting stuff. God responds to prayer. And so when a missionary writes home and uh, says, says, uh, I have this prayer request. Um, Can you please pray for this? And we read it, and we go, oh, that's great. Or we get the email, and we push it aside and say, I'll read it later. And then we realize two months later we haven't read it. Um, we've missed out on an opportunity to pray and to be partners in the ministry with a missionary. We've missed out on the opportunity to be exactly what Paul is writing here in verse 11. says, you also helping us in your prayers and thanks for the prayers of many that were bestowed on our behalf. 
I'm not, I know I've said this word prayer about a thousand times so far. And if there is nothing that you walk away from here, uh, remembering from this message is that people, God's people ought to pray. I tell you, historically, God has answered prayer and I can, we don't have enough time to go through all the, all the situations in, in history of God's people where he has answered prayer. I mean, we don't, we don't even have enough time in a year to do it, but just a few highlights uh, think back to the Great Awakenings in America, and you see in 1808, a group of college students from Williams College meeting in a grove, and a, uh, a thunderstorm comes upon them, and it chases them in, under, underneath a haystack. And so they meet, and they're, they're, just, they're praying about the future of missions under this haystack as the storm is taking place. This would later become known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting, and is the birth of American missions. As a result of uh, this group, they, they started this uh, American Mission Society and they sent the first missionaries out of America into Asia, into India in 1812 as a result of a prayer meeting. I'm convinced that the reason why foreign missions struggles in America is because, and I, this may be touching on some toes here, but it's due to the fact that American churches have abandoned the prayer meeting. In, in my personal heart, I believe that the prayer meeting, while the Sunday morning sermon is, is the apex of Christianity and, uh, and the apex of our, our, our worship experience as a whole, I think the backbone of the church is the prayer meeting. And the backbone of the church is God's people coming together and saying, you know, we're going to pray corporately. We're going to pray as a unified front before God and lifting our requests up to him and asking him to respond in faith. Jonathan Edwards, uh, another key figure in the first Great Awakening, and if you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, go home and just type in your Google search bar, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and then spend an hour reading that um, and tell me that you don't walk away changed and I won't believe you. Perhaps one of the greatest messages of, uh, of, I guess, modern history. In 1947, this is towards the end of the First Great Awakening, towards the end of the ministry of George Whitfield and others like him, Jonathan Edwards publishes a, title, a, a, a pamphlet or a book uh, that's titled A Humble Attempt to Promote the Explicit Agreement of the Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and Advancement of God's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant of Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. Whew. <laughs> Melissa Baker, aren't you glad that I didn't have that as my title? The short version of that title uh, is a call to united, extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion. On the heels of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards realized that the churches were abandoning the prayer meetings that were the catalyst for the revival of all of England and even spread over into America. He realizes that his church, is the prayer meeting, is starting to dwindle, and so he publishes his pamphlet. He preaches on it for several weeks. And he is saying that the, the church is growing apathetic towards the prayer meeting. And I want to ask, does that sound familiar? The last great, great revival, and I know you can say that the Billy Graham Crusades were a revival of sorts, but I would say the last great revival ended with the Second Great Awakening, which ended in 1850. It's the last great revival we've had in the United States. And I personally and wholeheartedly believe it's because as a church, we have abandoned praying. Every pastor in America asks the same question, and that is, why is the church prayer meeting the most poorly attended gathering of the church? And my response 
is that we make time for what is most important to us. We make time for what is important to us, and this isn't just about coming on a Wednesday night and pre, uh, coming and praying together as a group. This is about, I mean, the, the daily prayer that we spend in our own, our own selves, in our own prayer closet, or our own designated place where we're praying, it's getting on our knees before God and begging him to respond in faith, knowing that, knowing that we have come with a clean heart and a pure hands before him and saying, God, this is the situation. Please respond. Show us your, your presence. Be evident. And God does respond. I can, I can tell you, we have, we have been around missionaries galore, and uh, that is the wonderful uh, or blessing that my wife and ha- my, my wife and I have of uh, traveling so much as teenagers going to missions trips and the blessing that we have of being in the ministry that we are. We know missionaries and we hear prayer uh, prayer requests and we hear the answers to prayer constantly. And I'm telling you, people, when you are praying for your missionaries, when you are praying for your church, God is God is there. He's answering. He's eager to respond. My father-in-law said it's. It, it, he he compared it to a, a dad who was just so excited to give his kids candy. Like, Dad, can I have a piece of candy? Yeah, yeah, please. I mean, it's it's it, God's up there. He wants to answer our prayers, but he's waiting for us to come to him. He's waiting for us to humble ourselves, and it, it is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling to admit that, hey, I can't do everything on my own. I have to be dependent upon God. That's a humbling thought. And so I encourage you, as we, as, we, as we commit to praying and as we commit to praying as a group, as a, as a unified front before the Lord, I think we'll start seeing a lot more blessing. And I'm not talking about physical blessing. I mean, yes, we've endeavored on a building project and I praise the Lord for it. But if you want to see this true blessings of God, it's not in the buildings that we have. The true blessings of God is not in the amount of people that we have in our services, Rather, it's in the salvation of souls. It's in those baptismal waters back here stirring on a regular and frequent basis. The true blessing of God is we're seeing addicts come and finding victory as a result of the ministry of the church or marriages being restored. We see youth going into ministry saying, you know, I'm going to push off chasing after the dollar and I'm going to, to, to live, pursue a life of ministry, pursue a life of just, I mean, going into college. I, I, I see the... Christian colleges are dying. But within this past past year, there have been two Christian colleges, conservative Christian colleges that at Piedmont we used to play basketball against that have closed because they could not get enough students. And I am convinced that the reason why these colleges are closing, the reason why Christian schools like uh, like a uh, I'm not saying Wake, Wake Christian is struggling, but Christian schools like Wake Christian struggle across the world or across the nation. In my personal opinion, it all comes back to the fact that we, as a people, have neglected perhaps our greatest ministry and our greatest, our greatest need is dependence upon the Lord and humble prayer. And so I know I've, I know I've been very adamant this morning and uh, I've been very uh, almost cross. My wife says that sometimes I look angrier than I really am. Uh, I just have an angry face sometimes when I'm really, really happy, actually. Um, I know that I know these things, but I want to close this morning with a reminder from uh, perhaps one of the greatest works on prayer, uh, E.M. Bounds. Uh, if, you, if you've never read his his works, his anthology of uh, his collection of works, I encourage you to go find it and read it, and uh, you will walk away changed. 
Ian Bounds on the Power Through Prayer, he states, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better machinery, not new organizations or more and more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints men of prayer. And I tell you, men, I don't, uh, this, is, this is not a reflection on this church, because I know that the men of this church pray. But this is a reflection upon Christianity and the state of Christianity in America. Men are not doing their job of being the spiritual leader and, and paving the way and saying, we are going to pray. Follow me. This is how we pray. So I encourage you, church family. Let's continue. Let's abound in prayer for our missionaries, for our ministries here at Wake Chapel, for the, the ministry that we have of reaching the lost around us. Let's commit ourselves. Let's, let's actually have some diligence. Let's have some fervency about it. Because I think we have, we have grown apathetic and lazy. I know I have. Grown apathetic and lazy towards prayer. And so I speak these things to you, having been hit across the face with this all week. Um, let's pray. With that said, let's go before the Lord. Gracious Lord and Father, I pray that when all is said and done and the dust settles, Father, I pray that we will be found worthy in your sight. Not, not on our own worth and not on things that we have done, but rather, Lord, upon the dependence that we have had upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness, knowing that we can do nothing in and of ourselves apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will revive that power in our hearts. Lord, the Wake Chapel will be... Lord, I pray that Wake Chapel will be the catalyst for a revival in this city, in this town, in this country, or this, this county. Lord, I pray that we will submit ourselves to you in humble, fervent prayer. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I believe God the Holy Spirit works in bringing things together in ways that often we don't even realize. One very small part this morning of my belief in that working is the message, <clears throat> the encouragement to all of our hearts, and then David chose as our closing hymn one that I simply don't believe was by accident and I don't believe it could have been any more appropriate hymn to close our service 293 rise up O church of God that's the need let's pray Heavenly Father thank you once again for allowing us to come here together as a body of Christ, uh, serving you and, and praising your holy name and, and lifting up your name for all to hear. Uh, Lord, we just praise you and thank you so much for this opportunity and every opportunity you can give us, Lord, to pray to you, to uh, give you all the glory which is yours. 
we pray today for the, uh, for the Lowells and TWR. We pray that you will bless their ministries. Father, we pray for the Peavies, Lord. And what a wonderful, powerful, strong message today on prayer, Lord. And we, uh, we pray, Lord, that it is sunk into our hearts and that we will uh, go about our days uh, praising you in prayer and for uh, all that will listen. And, and uh, we pray for them on their soon coming uh, ministries to uh, the Dominican Republic, Lord. Bless them and guide them. Give them much strength. And we love you and praise you. Be with us, Lord. Be with our families. Help us and bless us. We love you and give you all the glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.